dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 49. How are you, Ray? Doing great. How are you? Good. You're feeling excited about our big interview today? I am pumped up. This man has forgotten more about Ukrainian history and what went on the altar than most people ever know. So I am super psyched to talk to him. Yeah, me too. Our guest today on the show, we're very excited, is Serhi Plohi from Harvard University. He's the Mikhail Hrushevsky Professor of Ukrainian History at Harvard University, where he also serves as the director of the Ukrainian Research Institute. He's the author of quite a few award-winning books, including The Cossacks and Religion in Early Modern Ukraine, Sars and Cossacks, A Study in Iconography, Unmaking Imperial Russia, Mikhail Hrushevsky and the Writing of Ukrainian History, the Origins of the Slavic Nations, Pre-Modern Identities in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Ukraine and Russia, Representations of the Past. The Cossack Myth, History and Nationhood in the Age of Empires. The Last Empire, The Final Days of the Soviet Union. The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, which was awarded the world's most important award for non-fiction, the Lionel Gelber Prize. And... A book that's been invaluable to us as we have wasted your time for the last, I don't know, 12 hours talking about the Yalta conference. Yalta, the price of peace. Serhi Plohi, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So Ray, before we jump you, in. Yeah. Yes, I was just going to invite you to jump in, Ray. Okay. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, sir, uh, again, just thank you for being on the show. Uh, like Cam, I've watched a lot of uh, YouTube videos of you and just the uh, the knowledge that must be crammed into your head is is pretty impressive. Uh, before we jump into the story of Yalta, could you give us a little idea about your story, where you grew up, any personal experiences you had uh, that you'd like to share that gives us an idea of life in Ukraine and how you ended up at Harvard? Yeah. Well, uh, I was born in Russia. At uh, that part, uh, Russia was, was like Ukraine and 13 other republics were part of the Soviet Union. So I guess I was born on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. <laughs> I grew up in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, again, the, the, the feeling that the Iron Curtain was there was somehow in my family from the very beginning because... Uh, my family, they used to live at the Kamchatka pe- Peninsula during the Second World War. And quite a few of my relatives were involved in this uh, delivering land lease from, uh, from U.S. 
to the Soviet Union during the war. And it was really very strange for me to hear the stories about cooperation between the Soviets and and the Americans at the time when, of course, the tensions were uh, quite high, uh, not so much in the 1970s, but certainly in the 1980s. So in a way, I am I'm a, a child of Cold War and uh, uh, grew up with the stories, of course, about my family uh, surviving through the Second World War. So all these themes that came together in my research on Yalta were there from very early on in my, uh, in my maybe not so my childhood, but certainly once I started to be interested in, in the world outside of of our house or outside of of, of the town in which I was growing up. Wow. So in most books that I've read on the Cold War dispense with the Yalta conference in a few paragraphs. Uh, the big three met at Yalta and the Crimea. They talked about Poland and Germany and they created the United Nations. And that's it. Um, you wrote a 500 page book on the subject. Uh, have to ask why. Uh, well, uh, I was trying to write a shorter book, but <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't. And uh, one of the reasons for that was, first of all, the characters themselves at the center of the story. So from uh, uh, Churchill to Roosevelt to Stalin. Again, there are, uh, I guess I can use that as my excuse. There are volumes and volumes written on each of those individuals. So that was one reason. Another one was that in those eight days at Yalta, they really dis- discussed the, the, the future of the world. They, they didn't decide what the future would be, but certainly they, they, they talked about it and they influenced it. And to understand that, you have to provide some background information, for example, on Iran or on the on the uh, Turkey and and Black Sea Straits and and on Poland they spent a lot of time talking about Poland so all of that needs needs times uh, needs time and needs pages so i guess that's that's the only excuse that i have but i, I can also add in terms of the the the, the um, share share uh, importance and 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 the enormity of the questions that they were discussed there uh, when i was writing this book i started to teach a course a seminar course at harvard here and i still keep teaching it and it's probably the, the most the most popular course that i ever offered and it's a very weird course compared to any other course probably ever offered at, at, at institution of higher learning in a sense that for entire semester, me and a group of students anywhere between 15 and 20 discussed the eight days at Yalta. So we spent <laughs> more hours than they spent at Yalta discussing what, <laughs> what, what happened there and still uh, there is not enough time. And again, it's, it's because of the, uh, uh, the, the personality is larger than life, but also the questions that that still, well, you, you can't imagine today the Security Council is all its uh, positive and, and very often negative things without looking at what happened at Yalta, because that's where the compromise was reached with which we live to, today, whether we like it or not. Mm. And, and we appreciate the fact that your book is uh, 500 pages long. I did want to add on to Cameron's question. Why do you think so many other 
Cold War histories um, skip over Yalta or, or just like Cam said, they just give it a couple of paragraphs and they move on. I'm just trying to, you think it might be a matter of sources or why, why do other people just give it a cursory glance? Uh, well, uh, uh, one of the reasons is that Yalta really, uh, it's uh, one of the things that I start in my course is trying to, to place Yalta conference to put the right label to it. So mm -hmm. whether it was a World War II conference, whether it was a peace conference, whether it was the conference of the beginning of the Cold War, and in a matter of speaking, all of the above, but also uh, uh, you have you, you can uh, come up with a serious reservations that it wasn't really fully peace conference, or that the Cold War started later, and so on and so forth. So it's somewhere between the cracks in a sense that the World War II already comes to an end. And the Cold War didn't start yet, so it's difficult sometimes to to put it in in in, in the right on the right place uh, in the right place on the shelf. So, my again, returning to my course, the title is Yalta Conference: The Origins of the Cold War. But then again, that's that's already problematic in itself. You start to discuss <laughs> whether that's really the, the the origins of the Cold War or not. Well, that's one of the reasons we've spent so much time talking about it on our show is, I, mean, I, I think, whether or not it's the beginning of the Cold War, it's certainly a very important flux point. And I, I really think that in order to understand certainly what happened at Potsdam and, and from that point onwards, we need to understand what was going on at Yalta. I, 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 I was interested, though, in how long it took you to write uh, I imagine you had to go back and, and dig up a lot of the uh, r reports coming out of the, the records of each country. Was it a, was it a difficult book to write? Uh, well, it was it was in a matter of speaking difficult in a sense that I was trained and uh, most of my research writing and teaching before this book on Yalta dealt with early modern history, with early modern European history. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always, as, as I explained to you in terms of my history of my family and Abrin, I was interested in, in, in Yalta and things, things related to, to the American-Soviet relations at the end of the World War II, at the beginning of the Cold War. So I always wanted to write it, but that was a risky undertaking uh, for, for someone who really made a name for himself in the, eight, in the 16th and 17th century history. So I was, I was collecting material for a long period of time, but really, really wasn't, uh, was hesitant whether actually I can do that, whether I should do that, whether my mm -hmm. colleagues will still will be saying hello to me. <laughs> so after, then I decided, okay, I, I got tenure, I was invited to Harvard, so I decided, okay, whatever happens, happens. Uh, somehow I will survive if it's a complete disaster, so let it be, at least I will try to do what I want to do. Well, we're glad well, you did it. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if we could just jump into the story of Yalta, could you give us your perspective on the main characters as they're heading into Yalta, and maybe we could start with President Roosevelt. What do you think is he's hoping to accomplish? What's his attitude about this? I'm just trying to get an idea of what he mu what must be going through his mind heading to the Crimea. Well, uh, it's uh, important to keep in mind that he is a 
person who is a few months away from his death. Mm -hmm. And death didn't come exactly unexpectedly in a sense that uh, he had health that was failing for quite a while. And now imagine the air travel in 1945. The war is still going on. You're flying over Mediterranean, over the Balkans. Uh, the Germans shoot at you from time to time. You come, you come uh, uh, over Atlantic again. There are there are German submarines, and he's in a really poor health. And he is by far the the, the most influential uh, figure statesman on the, on the world arena in 1945. So. The big question is why he's doing that, because he's literally risking his life mm. just just by, by, by taking this trip. And uh, there are two things on his agenda why he is, he is prepared to do that. So he is not really concerned very much anymore about what will happen uh, uh, in Central Europe with Germany. So the writing is on the wall. It's just a matter of months, if not weeks, before the uh, Third Reich will collapse. But he's very much concerned about what will be happening uh, in the Pacific. After all, he brought the United States into the war over the issue of Pacific, not Europe. And there, uh, Japanese are, are uh, really uh, turned out to be a formidable for in terms of the way how they, how they defend the islands. And what is ahead is basically the, the, the U.S. troops should invade mainland uh, uh, China and mainland Japan and, and the, the, the main islands of Japan. So the estimates are that they're all the way up to maybe one million casualties there will be. So he desperately needs Stalin to open a second front, so to say, now against, against Japan, the way how he opened second front in Europe. And uh, that is one of the reasons why he is taking this risk. Another one is that he's, he's quite idealistic. He, he, he comes from, he served uh, in the US government under Woodrow Wilson. He believes in the world shaped by international institutions. And his, uh, his pet project is the United Nations Organization. And again, he understands that unless Stalin, unless the Soviet Union, that is becoming more and more powerful with every passing day in 1945, unless they join the UN, that that, that world order that he tries to create, which uh, the idea is, of course, very clearly that it would be America-dominated uh, world, that that world order order would not would not come to existence. So that's that's the reasons why he is taking that. And and you take a look at his pictures at Yalta. Yeah, it is a dying man, and and it was really very very difficult for him to uh, to to keep up with uh, with Churchill, who was uh, drinking champagne and, <laughs> and feeling himself uh, at least physically quite well and fit, and 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 Stalin was was doing quite well as well. Uh, he, he would eventually um, all sorts of. Diseases related to the stress will catch up with Stalin later in 1945, after the end of the war. But at that point, he he was quite quite okay. So that's mm. that's NPR. Where do we want to go I mean, now to talk about Churchill or Stalin? Let's let's go to Stalin, Uncle Joe, if we can, sir. He what's 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 top 
most importance to him going into Yalta, do you think? Well, uh, he knows that he got all the all the Trump cards. So she got all the cards in that game. His troops are advancing. His troops are 40, 60 miles away from Berlin. The uh, Americans and the British stock, uh, got stuck in their dance. So he is really, if, if not the master of the world, probably FDR is, but he certainly is becoming to be the master of Eastern and Central Europe. And these are all people that they're in their 50s, 60s, that they all, their formative experience was World War I. So you, you look at how they discuss things, that's, that's what shaped their understanding, that's what shaped their expectations. So he knows that, that Germany is, is, is a major power, that it will be back 20 years later, like it was back after World War I. And he's trying actually to do something so that that would not happen. And he doesn't believe that the Soviet Union alone is capable to actually keep Germany down. So that's why he wants it to be partitioned. And he also wants Americans and British to be there and actually all together keep Germany down. And then he wants he wants Eastern Europe for himself. That's his vision, the, the security belt, the countries that would protect the Soviet Union against, against the next war. And he also understands that he, he represents a basically a, quite a poor country. He can't compete with Americans, he can't compete with the West if there is no what later would become known as Iron Curtain. So if it's if it's not if he doesn't build a wall and, and keeps everyone out and mm-hmm. uh, uh, of Eastern Europe and keeps those those countries under under control, and that's what he he wants to do. He wants uh, American and British cooperation in Germany, and he uh, is there to basically to make as little concessions as possible on Eastern Europe. Which brings us to the relatively weakest of the three, Churchill. What is he hoping to get out of all this, besides a lot of nice speeches? Well, uh, again, uh, some of those pictures show that he was quite unhappy. And and uh, whatever champagne he was drinking didn't help much. <laughs> and the, the, reason, the reason for that is uh, he's a smart man. He understands what is going on. And what is going on in the course of the Second World War is that the British world is coming to an end. And the United States is taking over. So Britain, that ruled the world for close to 100 years, is basically becoming a second-rate power. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has his interests in Eastern Europe, including in Poland, and Roosevelt refuses to back him 100% because at the top of Roosevelt's agenda are Japan and United Nations. He is offended by the fact that uh, Stalin and Roosevelt didn't include him in negotiations on uh, the future of uh, Japan and Korea and Manchuria in China. So there is a public quarrel between him and Anthony Eden, his, his uh, uh, foreign secretary. Eden says, well, this is, this is ridiculous that they didn't consult us. Why should we even sign these agreements? And, and Churchill says, well, 
you should sign that because then at least there will be some uh, some uh, pretense or some claim that we are we are world power and we have a say in the Pacific affairs as well. So he's he's trying to to get uh, a deal in which Britain and the West would have a giant condominium with the Soviets in Eastern Europe, and he doesn't get far with that. And uh, um, the only success of his was that he tries to rebuild France to the to the uh, status of great power, despite the fact that France, uh, militarily and otherwise, is quite weak in 1945. And he manages eventually to create a special sphere of influence, uh, not, not sphere of influence, but the occupation zone for France in Germany, but it comes only at the expense of the American and British zone, so not at the expense of the of the Soviet zone. So he is, he is not getting uh, much and, and he, he really has no choice but to trust, trust Stalin on his promises and he, deep down, he knows that that that's that's uh, something that he can't can't really count on. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the tenor of the relationship between the big three was during Yalta? I mean, I, I, I during reading your book, there seems to be obviously tension and conflict and a, and a deep level of distrust between uh, the whole three of them, quite frankly. But at the same time, there does seem to be a genuine feeling that comes through, particularly when they've had a bit to drink over dinner, of um, genuine affection, respect for each other, sort of collegial spirit. How How would you sum up their interpersonal relationship? Well, uh, I, I was thinking about that. What what to make out of that? Because it, what is happening exactly? What you just described, and my take on that is basically that it's 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 slowly up there at the top. So there are really few people that uh, people like FDR or Churchill or Stalin can talk to as equals, mm. and uh, and uh, they. But there are equals at Yalta. Uh, again, some are more equal maybe than others, but generally they are <laughs> equals. And and uh, uh, they managed to to to. They are also basically people who ended up at the top of, of of their governments, not just by accident, not that they inherited that or position or something like that. So they're shrewd negotiators. They 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 can charm people. And they can. They they also proved that they could actually cross the the cultural boundaries and boundaries between between different political systems. So, so there, there were moments when they really really uh, kind of felt felt at home. All, all of three of them together. But at the end of the day, they were also uh, shrewd politicians. So they they they, they were using the the. Or elements of that intimacy and other things, but basically to to get where they wanted to get. And Stalin apparently gen, genuinely respected FDR, but it doesn't mean that he was making any concessions. So that's that's in terms of their interpersonal relations. In terms of uh, of um, the the dynamic of relationship between the three. Well, FDR was trying and quite successfully to position himself like Judge Roosevelt. So he looked at 
there's two old-fashioned imperialists. One is Churchill, another another Stalin, who think about the world in terms of territory and spheres of influence and so on and so forth. And he represented a super power, economic super uh, powerhouse of the world, which basically didn't want borders. They didn't want borders, uh, spheres of influence, because the idea was to open the borders for American trade, for American investment. So from, from the American point of view, the United Nations, that was the way to go, not by dividing the world into the spheres of influence. And uh, so where, where Churchill and, and, and Stalin couldn't agree, because they were speaking the same language of spheres of influence, like in, in, in Poland or in, in Central Europe, uh, FDR was try, uh, trying to position themselves again as, as Judge Roosevelt. And uh, he, he played that... Uh, he played that role quite, quite successfully through the Yalta Conference. And uh, Churchill was the one who basically understood Stalin the most. He, he, he understood that that was a person who... Uh, who uh, really was a murderer. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, Churchill was also in the position that uh, there was little what he could do with that understanding. He was in a position where he was left with nothing else to hope for but but Stalin's word on Poland and on other issues. Uh, but but uh, Stalin could uh, but but Churchill could read Stalin much better than than Roosevelt. But both Roosevelt and Churchill still still misread him. And misread him because they were coming from their own, uh, with, with the baggage of their own political experiences. And mm -hmm. that baggage was basically democracies. They, they couldn't imagine the situation where there is a dictator, where that dictator decides who lives and who dies. So when Stalin was, was taking uh, steps that they kind of really couldn't understand and 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 they would say, okay, those were bad advisors. Stalin is a nice guy. It's just bad advisors. It's that awful Molotov or somebody else, or Vashinsky, that influenced him. So again, they were thinking in terms of how the politics would, was done at that time in, in, in uh, London or in Washington. So again, Churchill understood Stalin better than, than Roosevelt, but even Churchill uh, sometimes misread him. And, and the same is true. Sorry, the same is true for Stalin because Stalin didn't understand that FDR didn't have all the power in his hands. That the media could 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 mm -hmm. uh, topple his projects. That there was a Congress, so uh, that the, the, there was Senate, and and that the president was not all powerful. So uh, Stalin never really really uh, accepted that. He, he thought that uh, FDR was playing a game. So he, that perspective you just gave us of the level of naivety from the perspective of, of Roosevelt and Churchill regarding the dictatorship uh, seems, I think, to modern listeners to be quite naive. Uh, you know, we tend to think we very well understand what a dictatorship is like. Why were these guys who were certainly weren't naive in any other sense of the word, they were... They were very experienced, worldly men, politicians had been all over. Uh, 
How is it that they could be so naive about Stalin's power as late as 1945? He'd been in power for two decades, more than two decades at that point. Well, one thing is I already mentioned that their formative experience was World War One, And World War One was largely fought by the monarchs and, and, and the leaders of democratic national movements. And uh, um, the interwar period produced produced tyrants and produced uh, autocrats and authoritarian rulers. But again, they didn't have much of a time really to to understand that and grasp what 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 really was going on. So they they, they were on the front line, really learning firsthand what what that really was. And we have, of course, this already benefit of the hindsight. We have. Uh, the decades of the literature and discussions of who was Hitler and who was Stalin and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, so from that point of view, uh, I think they, 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 they all still lived in, in, in the world of 1914 or 1918. So that was the norm, other things were aberrations, and then they thought that the world eventually has to come back to, to that norm of, of, of non-autocratic states. But on the other hand, again, they were, uh, 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 you know, well, uh, if, if uh, in, in, in our everyday lives, you, you, you don't like a guy and, and you learn certain things about your neighbor, okay, there is an option not to talk to him or to her. Those guys at the top, they don't have this option. <laughs> uh, they have to go and they have to talk and they have to, to establish the, the, this personal relationships and they ha have to hope that that would work. So they were they were happy to to fool themselves to a degree because because that fit that fit their their agendas. Mm -hmm. For example, there there is a lot of discussion about whether whether FDR knew about Stalin's massacre of the uh, uh, tens of thousands of the Polish prisoners of war. After, after the Soviet takeover of uh, um, parts of Poland in, in 1939. And the evidence is that they, they, re they reported to the president, but the president preferred not to, not to take this too seriously. He, 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 he preferred not to believe in that. Uh, and uh, it, it, on the one hand, it's naivete. On the other hand, okay, what he would do is this belief that Stalin is a murderer, and you can't, you can't deal with him. Well, mm -hmm. eventually he, he flew to Yalta, and, and before that to Tehran. So let me ask a, a different question, going a different direction. Um, before I read your book, I was I, I probably had a common view that a lot of people do that uh, during Yalta. <clears throat> excuse me, Stalin out-negotiated FDR, particularly over Poland, which you explained very well in Eastern Europe. And then there's that famous quote from Admiral Leahy saying that uh, as far as the language of Yalta in regards to Poland, that it was so, excuse me, <clears throat> that it was so vague that the Soviets would be able to stretch it all the way from Yalta to Washington without technically breaking it. But you um, give a different perspective in your book uh, of that moment. Uh, can you explain to us uh, what you think happened? Mm -hmm. 
Well, um, I mentioned at the beginning the, the course on the Yalta conference that I teach, and it was already after the book was out that one of graduate students who took the, the course wrote a wonderful paper where he was trying to compare the behavior of FDR and his negotiation tactic, strategy, activity at Tehran when he was in relatively good health and at mm -hmm. Yalta. And uh, um, the conclusions that he came to was that FDR was much less active in terms of the number of interventions at Yalta than he was at Tehran. But generally, actually, there was no difference in the positions. The positions that he was taken at Tehran were the same that he was taken at Yalta. Those that ch were changed were changed as a result of uh, negotiations and, 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 and discussions with the State Department and so on and so forth. So basically, it's absolutely true that FDR was in poor health, but at least that research in my own feeling says that it's not like we got a different result of Yalta because FDR was not up to the task. We didn't get what we would like to get from Yalta, basically because things that we would like to get and, and Churchill wanted to get, and he actually, through his memoirs, he was the first historian of World War II. He shaped the perception of our today's world, including ourselves, of what, what was good, what was bad in the war. Uh, and he was really upset by Yalta. He was upset by what happened in, in, in Central Europe, in Eastern Europe, in Poland. And the question was, you, you, you quoted Lehi, that was exactly a language on Poland. Well, the truth is that for FDR, whatever we think about that today, and for me as someone coming from Eastern Europe, again, that's, that's, that's a really very painful uh, thing to say. But at the end of the day, that was actually secondary issue for, for FDR. He went to Yalta for a deal on Japan and deal on UN, and he was prepared to pack his bags once those goals were achieved. The rest was secondary. The rest was something that actually he could trade, he could compromise, that what was secondary for him turned out to be uh, the, the the primary objective for Churchill, and of course, of course, what what we see later is is this Iron Curtain, and of course, the the, the history of Eastern Europe uh, uh, under the Soviet control up until 1989. And this, it, it, I'm sorry, Cam, if I could just follow up real quick, I apologize. So right after um, Leahy says that, you know, FDR says, you know, I've I've done the best I can for right now, you know, that's just the best I can do, which I guess maybe is true in a sense, but that, like you said, that doesn't help all the people in Eastern Europe that are about to be thrown behind that uh, Iron Curtain and have to deal with uh, Stalin being their master in a literal sense. Uh, exactly, exactly. And, and uh, basically... Uh, uh, I, I hope that I, I, I use that, that 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 expression in the right way, but uh, uh, it's yes, kicking yes. the can down the road, right? That's that's mm -hmm. the in English. Okay, so yes, sir, uh, or at least in American English, and uh, uh, that's that's exactly what happened at Yalta. They they uh, the negotiations on the uh, uh, on Poland and the Polish government 
they uh, they decided that they will uh, the, the negotiations will continue in Moscow, and uh, it was one of the members, another member of the U.S. delegation, who said, uh, "Well, we'll have to start all from from scratch. We'll have to start all all from the very beginning. The negotiations in Poland." So, so in a sense. FDR didn't get what what he wanted, but he didn't really uh, give give his okay either. So it was mm-hmm. stoned. Okay, we can't agree on that. We'll we'll keep we'll keep talking about that, which was on the, in a way kind of a face saving uh, face saving uh, exercise. And FDR was was a master of of, of that kind of exercises. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so how do you think the alternative view, the mainstream view, I think, particularly in the United States, that Stalin pulled the wool over FDR's eyes because FDR was old and sick and weak and befuddled and that uh, Stalin was this genius, cunning, evil mastermind. How did that become the dominant viewpoint? Did that start with Churchill's Memoirs, or was it driven by some other uh, domestic political agendas? Do you think? Well, it it, it started earlier than than Churchill's memoirs. Uh, it seems to me that the first volume of memoirs appeared in 1953, and uh, really, really, the the um, that that um, um, kind of negative. Uh, uh, a take on, on Yalta and FDR, it started in 1948-1949, so really with the start of the of the Cold War. And uh, the, population, the people at large were actually surprised. We were just fighting that war, which was a good war for good reasons. The Soviets were our allies. And now what happened? We have Iron Curtain. We have half of Europe... And, and under Stalin's control, we have Stalin's spies in, in, in the United States, who is, whom should we blame for that? And, and it's uh, unfortunately a norm in the, in, the, in the U.S. politics. It's a blame game. It, it's, uh, and and uh, there are just two parties. So <laughs> uh, uh, Yalta ended up to be the last conference where FDR uh, participated. So it very much became a debate about his legacy in the foreign policy and also legacy of the Democrats as a whole. And, and of course, um, uh, the uh, new leadership in the, in the Democratic Party, uh, Harry Truman, was trying to distance himself uh, as much as he could from FDR. But really, this is basically a disappointment with the fact that the war ended and it almost immediately triggered a new confrontation now with the nuclear weapons. And uh, and uh, the game started between Republicans and Democrats, whom, whom to blame. Again, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, outcome uh, of World War II for Eastern Europe, again, was, was uh, really uh, tragic. Um, uh, to be conquered by, by Hitler than to be quote unquote liberated by Stalin, uh, but it's it's also the the legitimate question of what what the United States could do at that moment. Uh, either at Yalta, when again the Red Army was 
was uh, uh, later when when the Eastern Europe was under under the Soviet control. I, I was thinking about that a lot, and and um, uh, really the only the only solution to that would be if the U.S. and Britain would go into Europe, not in 44, but in 42, whether it would be possible, whether whether the, the country would be prepared to do that, what the price of that would be. But that's the only thing that could really change, change the, the political map of Europe after the war if, if American and British troops ended up uh, on, on, on Vistula and not, and not, and not uh, uh, on Rhine and, 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 and in Germany. Because once Stalin was in control of the territory, he was not going to give it up. So that's, that's my, uh, one of the conclusions that I drew from, from studying uh, Yalta conference, but also other materials related to the, uh, to the end of World War II and start of Cold War. Which, ironically, is what Stalin was trying to get them to do, almost from 1941. He kept saying, get your ass into Europe. And they were like, yeah, no, we're not quite ready yet. So that's uh, crazy. Exactly. Mm. Because Mm. for Stalin, Stalin, the issue was survival. Mm. In 1941, in 1942, what he wanted, and uh, uh, anyway, even even when Hitler was near the gates of, of Moscow, even in December of 1941, he negotiated with Anthony Eden. And what he wanted, he wanted the Baltic states, parts of Ukraine, parts of Belarus that he took as part of the Molotov-Ribbentrop deal in 1939. So he wanted to keep that. But the rest was up for grabs in 1941 and 1942. But after Stalingrad, the situation changed. After Stalingrad, what we have is Tehran. And already at Tehran, Stalin is not as powerful yet as, as he would be at Yalta, but he is powerful enough to, to demand uh, more control over, over, over Balkans, over, over Central Europe, and so on and so forth. And by Yalta, it was almost impossible to say no to him. Again, at Tehran, there were some preliminary agreements made, but again, it, it all would depend on how the war would go. And by February of 1945, it was clear that the, the Soviets would would uh, control uh, Eastern Europe and dominate and dominate Central Europe. So Stalin had all the cards. That's why uh, FDR and Churchill had to fly in February to the Crimea Again, from my perspective and from perspective of everyone who grew up in the Soviet Union, of course, that's that's a wonderful proposition, one of the most warmest places in the Soviet Union. But it was really cold and unpleasant <laughs> in, 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 in Crimea, especially if you think about FDR flying there from Georgia and and Churchill flying there from, well, all of, both of them flew from Malta eventually. Mm-hmm. So it was a long and pleasant trip and, and uh, cold and, and, and pleasant weather. But they came to the master of Eastern Europe, tried to, to get concessions from him. And it was, it was difficult to do. And, and to me, um, you make that quite clear in the book. I mean, Stalin had this ter- territory. He wasn't going to give it up. All their talking was a complete waste of time, which is why he just let them talk. But he already knew... 
he wasn't going to give it up. But but if I could switch gears a little bit, you quote James Burns in the book. The the Americans have been with the Soviets for a couple of days, and they're starting to get a healthy respect for the Russians' negotiating um, skills. And uh, James Burns says it's not a question of what we let the Russians do, but what we could get the Russians to do. And so they really learned that they couldn't push them too far, that they were the masters, masters on the field, especially mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe. Do you really think that, having said that, do you really think Stalin wanted to have a working relationship with the USA? And, and what was he hoping to get out of it, if he did want, if he really did want one? Well, uh, <clears throat> uh, he did. He did. And... Um, um, the the estimates uh, we have that come from uh, came from the Soviet archives after 1991 the the position papers that were produced in 1944-1945 were saying that uh, while the Soviet Union would need uh, time to rebuild itself and recover, so the Soviet Union needed and wanted some 10-15 years of peace. After that, they thought, okay, they could keep going and eventually Europe will become communist one way or another, either through the communist uprisings in those countries or with the help of the Red Army. But first they had to, 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 to rebuild their country. And for that, they needed peace. So Stalin was, was quite, quite honest when he was <clears throat> talking about peace and good, good relationships with, with the uh, Americans in particular, because... That was the richest economy. That's where the assistance could come, not from Britain. And second, because Stalin and FDR were thinking in different terms. Stalin was thinking in terms of the control of the territory, and FDR was thinking in terms of the International Peace Organization, United Nations Organization. So he thought that he would it, it would be easier for him to, to negotiate with FDR. But... Neither Stalin nor Churchill believed that America would be a major player in Europe after the war. FDR didn't believe in that. Again, they, their experiences, their expectations were shaped by what happened in World War I and what happened after World War I. And what happened after World War I, America helped to create the League of Nations and then didn't join League of Nations. Isolationist was. So the idea was that once the war is over, the Congress will not allow the president of the U.S. to keep American boys overseas for one extra day. So all three of them were preparing for the, for the situation in which Europe will be divided between the Soviet Union and Britain. And Soviet Union and Britain were fighting for the border, where the border between them will go whether Poland will be on the Soviet side or on the British side, or whether it will be a neutral zone where both both uh, could, could, could function and exercise their influences, that was the British, the British understanding. That's why Churchill was so eager to bring France back to the, to, to, to the negotiation table, to uh, rebuild it as a great power, because he, he realized that the British resources were really uh, really not enough to uh, successfully compete with the Soviet Union in Europe. So that's that's the divisions of the of the peace that they had. Again, FDR thought, okay that he will have to the America will have to retreat uh, uh, behind the Atlantic 
and so thought Churchill and Stalin as well. Mm. One of the interesting things that really comes across clearly in your book, though, is that neither Churchill nor Roosevelt really had any time for the Polish, uh, particularly the London government, or de Gaulle, uh, the Free French, uh, they <laughs> they seem to be they seem to despise both the Polish government representatives and the French, but tried to do the uh, uh, things that was going to be in the best interest, I think, for America and England with regards to Poland and the French. I, they seem to be basing their actions on Poland, for example, not so much because they really like the Poles. But be, or, or because of honour or, or doing the right thing, but because of how it was going to play back at home during their upcoming elections. Well, uh, exactly, exactly. And again, uh, in in US case, um, that was that was again. It, it, polls were not the the, the 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 first situation like that. The Irish uh, earlier. After the World War uh, One was another example, but you have this mobilized uh, minorities, mobilized ethnic groups that acquire a lot of power in the American politics um, during the the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, the Baltic diasporas in the United States. So the Ukrainian diaspora in the United States played enormously important role in shaping American policy toward the Soviet Union or Armenian, for that matter. So the Poles were really there uh, shaping shaping very much um, uh, American and, and uh, to a lesser degree, uh, British policy. In, in the United States, again, that was through the, um, uh, through the uh, ballot box, uh, because the, the numbers, the, the, the numbers of Polish, uh, Polish uh, voters were, were quite, quite uh, amazing. And uh, uh, FDR told secretly uh, Stalin or privately uh, at Tehran that he, in principle, agreed with movement of the Polish borders or movement of the Polish state altogether to the West, something that was suggested by Churchill. But he couldn't commit publicly to that until the presidential elections are over. And Mm. the presidential elections were over. He was inaugurated. So it was only at Yalta that he... He publicly he publicly supported this this deal on Poland. Before that, he couldn't do that. And uh, Churchill had a hard time after Yalta when he came back, uh, because uh, there was a very strong support for the Polish case in the in the parliament. Again, uh, Britain, um, at least at least in 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 rhetorical terms, in legal terms, went to war, Second World War on the issue of the violation of sovereignty of Poland by, by Germany. So from that point of view, Polish question, the, the, the issue of what, what will happen with Poland was at the core of British understanding of why they were in the war, whether they are losing or whether they were losing or they were or, or they were winning. And it looked like that after all the sacrifice, the, they got into the war on the issue of Poland and now they were, they were losing Poland. So that was... That was tough, a tough uh, situation to deal with for for Churchill's government. So that was also one of the of the main reasons why he was so um, so persistent at at Yalta uh, and and was not was was prepared to stay there almost for the rest of his life and negotiate, but not go back <laughs> with this 
with this uh, very unfavorable deal in Poland. Again, and uh, you, you, what you see here is really a combination of, of a number of things. One is is the, the just the politics, the, the politics at home. Another is the um, understanding by those leaders of geostrategic interests of the countries, of their countries. In British case, um, uh, again, uh, the, the, uh, holding to Poland worked both for, for domestic politics and for geostrategic, geostrategic vision. And then there are personal relations. And as you said, they can't stand the goal. <laughs> None of them. Uh, uh, it's, but but, but the Churchill, uh, uh, Ch Churchill uh, is also not a great fan of, of the goal, but, but the goal is the, 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 only, the only game uh, uh, that he has to play when it comes to France. So he does that. Uh, with the Poles, uh, it looks like, again, uh, what, what they dislike about the Polish government in exile in London is that they are so... Um, um, that they, in their opinion, they're not flexible. That they, they can't understand that uh, they should make a deal with the with the Soviets. That the West can do very little to save them. That the Soviets will be in control of that territory, and that it's time it's time to compromise. But for for, for the Polish politicians, are like any other politicians, when Mikolajczyk, by far the, the best known Polish politician at that time, the prime minister of the government in exile accepted or half accepted the, the change of the Polish borders, he had to resign as the prime minister of the of his government. So by the time of Yalta, he was replaced by someone else. So mm -hmm. it's, um, uh, again, the, the, there, are, there are at least three things that come together uh, when you look at relations between these leaders, and this is job security or domestic politics, the, the uh, strategic vision of, of the interests of their country and then interpersonal relationship. Wow. So let's talk about how happy the big three were coming out of Yalta then, sir. He may be going in reverse order this time, starting with uh, Pooh Bear himself, uh, Mr. <laughs> Churchill. Um, so um, starting with Stalin, right? Churchill. Well, Let's go with Churchill. With Churchill. Okay, okay, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, uh, uh, Churchill was not happy. <laughs> uh, we have, uh, we really, uh, uh, historians are kind of privileged in, in, in the case of Yalta that we have not just the protocols, uh, sometimes very boring, of the negotiations that were happening take place. There, there are a lot of details that they discuss, or the, the diaries or memoirs of the military commanders, but we also have... Uh, diaries and memoirs left by two ladies. One of them was FDR's uh, daughter. Uh, another was uh, Churchill's daughter. And they talk about their fathers. They talk about uh, the the relationship uh, within within the British and and American teams, relationships between between their fathers and Stalin. So you get a kind of information that you wouldn't get otherwise. And mm. what Churchill's daughter uh, writes that immediately the, 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 when the conference came to an end, Churchill felt himself lonely, exhausted. He wanted, he wanted to leave. Uh, when uh, he dictated uh, 
um, um, chapters for his memoirs, he has he had editors or ghostwriters who were doing that for him on the basis of things that he dictated. He uh, ended up dictating a bunch of anecdotes and, and stories about the Alta conferences conference, but refused to go into into basically analysis. And it was done for him by his his ghostwriters. So he was upset even in 1949 and 1950 about about what happened there. So again, he didn't get far on Poland. He got a, 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 was a little bit more successful in France, but overall there was writing on the wall that uh, the, the 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 era of Britain was over. And then he had very unpleasant this uh, kind of uh, uh, bickering and, 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 and exchanges with FDR. Um, it's, it's difficult to imagine today, but uh, in 1945, uh, American politicians, or for that matter, uh, average Americans to a degree that I can understand from my sources, were looking really at Britain as, as at this imperial power uh, and and uh, territory hungry imperial power and and FDR was was there to demolish empires to to mm -hmm. to remove the borders to to make this uh, uh, colonies uh, free or set them on the on the way to freedom and Churchill was saying okay he didn't become the the um, uh, first minister of, of of the king to preside over the disintegration of the empire. So empire was under attack, Britain was under attack, and it was very clear at at Yalta. So much clearer than it was at Tehran. At Tehran was November, December 1943. By the time of Yalta, February of 1945, the Americans on the European front outnumbered significantly the British. So the, the British were really, in, in, in a matter of speaking, secondary force in Europe. That wasn't the case in 1943. The British were the, the, the main fighting force at that time. It changed by 1945. And, and, and then you mentioned, um, I'm not sure if you covered this in the book, but then Churchill ends up losing the election that he was so worried about. Uh, how does Stalin um, how does Stalin feel coming out of Yalta? Well, he he felt very good. <laughs> he felt very good, and and uh, we don't have memoirs or diaries of his daughter. Well, we have memoirs later, but they did, didn't deal with Yalta, right. so we don't know much about about how how that person felt. Uh, uh, but uh, we can guess about that because we have long, long lists of people, hundreds of people who received high awards for participating in the Yalta Conference, helping to organize the Yalta Conference and so on and so forth. And that means only one thing, that the people at the very top was really very happy with the way how things turned out. He used to say even before the Yalta Conference that Russians were great soldiers, but lousy diplomats, that they had to uh, uh, leave the territory that they conquered uh, with and, 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 and gained with their blood, and they would lose that at the negotiation table. So from that point of view, he didn't, he didn't make any concessions on the territory that was captured by the Red Army, and uh, by his standards, that was 
that was a success, and uh, uh, he he ended up on on very positive note with FDR. So from that point of view, he thought that he had he had an ally. Uh, if, if things if, if the going will get tough with Churchill, that he could count on 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 uh, FDR. He he didn't seem to get what he wanted though in terms of clarity around reparations. Do you think that put a stink on it for him? Well, um, he didn't, and and uh, uh, but at the end it was basically a compromise. So it's mm. not like he lost altogether. Um, what uh, what happened there was that Churchill was uh, absolutely against against reparations, and FDR uh, took middle ground. And eventually, eventually, it was they decided on the figure. Uh, it seems to me twenty million dollars. It is in the book. I don't remember right now. And again, it was it was a lot of money uh, at that uh, uh, twenty billion, maybe I don't remember. Uh, twenty billion. Twenty billion. Twenty billion in total. Ten of which was supposed to go. Well, Stalin wanted half of that to go to the Soviet right, Union. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, I hope my students are not listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he he actually got. Uh, he didn't get everything that he wanted, but he 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 got part of that. And uh, the way how the thing with reparations developed later was that. That was one issue where Stalin needed needed cooperation of the Western powers because the reparations were supposed to come mostly from the industrial heartland, the, the best economically developed part of Germany, which mm-hmm. were in the American and British zones of occupation in the West. The Eastern Germany that with Berlin that Stalin got was mostly agricultural. And uh, so he could take relatively little from there, and that's why he wanted, in forty-five, forty-six, forty-seven, he wanted he wanted uh, this uh, 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 cooperation on the on the, on the reparations going on, and he he couldn't get what he needed without without goodwill of the United States and Britain. So he listen. I, w- I want to be. Uh, we've got a few more questions for you, but I'm conscious of the time. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, do you have to go? Well, uh, I wouldn't mind, but again, I, I, I will be happy. Mm, couple parting questions. That would be that would be great. Well, um, I d- yeah. Sorry, Ray. I was just going to say, like, pick one last question um, that you think would be good to wrap it up. I, I just want to ask this just because uh, people have, have been asking us through emails. Do you think it would have made a difference if uh, President Roosevelt had survived another year or two into his presidency? Do you think it would have made a difference about how things are going to come out eventually with the start of the Cold War? Well, uh, my understanding is that uh, the the breakup probably would be postponed mm-hmm. uh, uh, postponed maybe for a year or two but I don't think that overall the, that would change the course of history and I think that the the key issue why why we got the Cold War and why the kind of 
uh, alliance that that was forged during the World War II didn't survive was the unexpected to everybody collapse of Britain. Mm. Financial and geostrategic collapse. Because what was happening was that FDR was playing the game of this negotiator, of, of mediator between the two old-fashioned imperialists. And uh, America, from that point of view, was above the battle. Again, one needed, of course, the 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 uh, experience and 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 uh, the, the the talents and the canniness of of, of FDR to, to play that game. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Truman was not he was not cut from that close. He, he couldn't he couldn't play uh, play that game. So FDR could play it. But he could play it only for, for, for to, to a certain degree. Once Britain actually collapsed economically, once they couldn't maintain their uh, presence in Greece, in, in Turkey, once the Soviet Union was moving in Iran, was moving in Turkey, was moving in, in Greece, and Britain was not there, the United States actually stepped in. And started to perform the role that Britain was playing both in Europe and in in, in the Middle East. Uh, uh, and from that point of view, the world immediately became bipolar. And in that in, in that situation, it was just a, a matter of time. So things could be postponed maybe, but it would be a matter of time before that competition would really would really start. And so I would I would say that with the with the collapse of of Britain de facto collapse uh, as, as economic great power as its 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 presence overseas the Cold War was almost inevitable. Mm. Well, so he um, will let you go. We've really appreciated your time. It seems remiss of us to have one of the world's leading Ukrainian scholars on and not talk about the. A lot of more, or to talk about the Euro Maiden protests, or even the uh, the end of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev versus Boris Yeltsin. But maybe you will be generous enough to come back on the show at another time, be, and we can get into that stuff. I will be happy to do that. And thanks a lot for wonderful questions. Wonderful, thank- and thanks for reading the book. <laughs> well, sir, thank, thank you, you for. Sir. Thank you for writing the book. Uh, it's been an invaluable resource to us, so uh, we certainly appreciate the effort that you went to. Okay. Thanks a lot, Cam Andre. Thank Thanks, you, sir. Thanks, sir. Have a good night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bye. Bye. Wow. Yeah. What a, what a lovely, what a lovely uh, eloquent chap Mr. Plohe is. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to let everybody know um, that also the audio book, of uh of his book the the reader does a fantastic job so if you're on summer break or whatever or if you're making a trip consider the book at audible because the reader does a great job and i just have to say that my favorite part of the entire interview here you get the sense that he's this old world guy with his um with his accent and you know us americans love his accent uh love accents and then suddenly his phone rings and even that is an old school <laughs> ring. I mean, I just, I just thought that was so cool. Of, of, was, of course, he would have that kind of phone or ringtone oh, or whatever. Of course, he would. 
Well, I was going to ask him if that was actually a, a Bakelite phone that he brought with him from the Soviet <laughs> Union from them. the 50s. <laughs> or if, as you say, he deliberately picked that ringtone for his iPhone, because it is perfect, It reminds right? me of the, the mother country. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, no, well, listen, um, uh, as you know, I had another couple of pages of questions to yes. ask him. But uh, he he was so generous in answering the ones Absolutely. that we had at the beginning that we ran out of time. He's written a ton of books. This guy's like nonstop, go, 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 go. So yeah, the fact that we got an hour, I mean, I am very appreciative yeah. of that. And seriously, like his 2015 book, The Gates of Europe, A History of the Ukraine, yes. which I haven't read yet, but it was awarded the Lionel Gelber Prize, which seriously is known as the yeah. world's most important nonfiction uh, prize. Dang. Uh, and it, it's you know that's that's uh, a huge honor. So he is uh, uh, the real deal, man. Like serious, serious uh, historical scholar, particularly on that part of the world. So I really hope we can get him back on to talk about some of those other issues, uh, particularly the Holodomor, uh, Holodomor, Hodor, right. or the Hodor, as I always think of it. <laughs> Uh, I have to figure out how to spell it, which, for the people who don't recall, that is the great um, famine of the Ukraine that happened in 1932 and 1933. There's still a lot of debate over whether or not it was deliberately planned by Stalin to eliminate a Ukrainian independence movement and therefore as a genocide, or if it was accidental because of his attempts to modernize and industrialize the Soviet Union uh, in which case, it's just mass murder, maybe. Right. Uh, accidental mass murder versus genocide. So I'm sure he has Grand, views on yeah. that. Uh, great tragedy. Estimated 7 to 10 million uh, Ukrainians died during that two-year period. Um, insane number of people. But again, uh, there's a big difference between... I mean, it's tragic either way, but there's a big difference between... Mm-hmm. It being the unfortunate uh, side effects of Stalin's right. attempts to quickly industrialize the Soviet Union, as we've talked about on the show much earlier on, because he figured that they were going to get overrun or invaded or starved to death if he didn't modernize their 19th century agricultural and model. He was right. Yeah, he was I mean, right. He had to industrialize. Yeah, so it turns out. I mean, that doesn't excuse what happened, but yeah, he uh, sold the grain. They starved. He he uh, modernized, and uh, he he needed that. But yeah, you don't do that at the expense of seven million people. Well, maybe you do. I mean, if it's as we've said before, I've said before on the show, when it's a choice between seven million people and seventy million people, what what are the mm-hmm. ethics yeah. of that? Um, I don't know, man. But I, uh, anyway, I'd love to get uh, him back on to talk about that. And also, absolutely, uh, he's obviously uh, one of the world's experts on the Euromaidan protests from, I think it was 2014, which led to Putin's intervention in the Crimea and everything that's been going on there. So it'd be great to have him talk about that. Great to have him talk about the end of the Cold War. I've seen some YouTube interviews with him talking about Gorbachev's vision and that of Boris mm-hmm. Yeltsin and how they conflicted, how George H.W. Bush, which might be surprising to a lot of people, when he was president during the early 90s, actually was trying to hold the Soviet Union together 
right. after the US had spent 40 yeah. years trying to destroy the Soviet Union, when it started to collapse, Bush was trying to keep it together because there were uh, nuclear missiles, nuclear silos scattered around the you know the satellite uh, Soviet um, nations and the right. US were concerned that if it all went you know belly up what would happen to those nuclear missiles and the nuclear silos who would be running them at least with Gorbachev it was uh, somebody you knew and in fact Reagan and HW Bush had good relationships with Gorbachev mm-hmm. um warm interpersonal relationship they felt they could trust him they felt like they knew him uh but Yeltsin was uh an unknown entity Wild and, and card, yeah and obviously a massive alcoholic uh who liked jumping on <laughs> tanks uh finally I think he would have got along well with George W Bush uh yeah. And probably Trump, I think they would have got along very well too. But anyway, um, so uh, hopefully he'll he'll um, sir he that is will be good f- as he promised yeah. to not Yeltsin come back on <laughs> and uh, talk to us some more about that kind of stuff because I mean it's a, well it's great man it's so great to uh, have the opportunity to talk to the world's leading experts on this yeah. kind of stuff um, and you know I'm yeah. in our cap. The other thing I was going to say is he mentioned uh, the the one of the reasons for the, the the interpersonal relationships between the big three is that it's lonely at the top. And I, I was thinking at the time, I know that feeling. You know, you and I feel that it's lonely at the top of the podcasting world. But it won't be so lonely in a couple of weeks when you come down right. to Australia and uh, we. Booning. I mean, we um, ha- hanging out together. We hang out together in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Lifeofcaesar.com slash Ray Day if you um, want to get a ticket to that. Um, and I will be emailing everybody who has bought a ticket in the next week or so and talking about uh, some ideas for locations for where we can catch up. Um, looking forward to I that. I got an idea. Let's just meet at one of their houses. Yeah, and yeah. It ain't a party until something's broken. Woo! <laughs> Sorry. All right, we got more shows to do. We should uh, yeah, let's do wrap yeah. this one up. And uh, right. we'll be back next week with more of the Alter Conference. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.